Hello everyone and thanks for joining this podcast which is part of Orchestra of the Swans Earth Cycle Environmental Project and in partnership with the Stratford Literary Festival. Earth Cycle brings together science, art, literature and music to help us consider our most urgent environmental concerns. At the same time it celebrates nature and our place within it. My name is Julia Wheeler and it's my huge pleasure to welcome the writer, internationally renowned climate activist and winner of the Orwell Prize for Journalism, George Monbiot. George is widely known for bringing bold, creative thinking to the issues of climate change and ecological crisis that face our planet. In his most recent book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, George turns his attention to the global food system and reimagines how we might sustainably provide everyone with a healthy diet while not destroying our wildlife in the process. During this conversation, we're going to talk about the changes that are needed for that to happen. Welcome, George. Let's begin, if we may, with farming practices as they stand. Where are we on the spectrum of sustainability? Mm. So we don't like to see it this way because we all have quite a rosy view of farming. And of course, we all depend totally on farming. But the unfortunate truth is it is the worst thing we've ever done to planet Earth and remains as such. It's the biggest cause of wildlife loss and habitat destruction and species extinction. It's the biggest cause of soil degradation and fresh water use. It's by far and away the biggest cause of land use, which should actually be at the top of our list of environmental concerns, because every hectare we use for ourselves is a hectare that can't be occupied by wild ecosystems on which the great majority of species depend. It's one of the biggest causes of climate breakdown, of water pollution, and of air pollution as well. But we're happy to point the finger at almost any other industry, but we apply radical double standards when it comes to farming and go to some lengths to overlook its impacts. Why do you think that is? Is it a cultural thing, social, economic, why? I think it's so deeply embedded in our culture and in our lives. It goes back thousands of years. We see it as normal and natural, um, as opposed to these newer industries which are imposing impacts that we're unfamiliar with. And it shaped our landscape in ways which we regard now as unexceptional, but at the time would have had devastating impacts on wildlife and ecosystems, on indigenous people, on hunt, hunters, hunter and gatherers, for instance, and is still having those impacts in many parts of the world as the agricultural frontier burns through forests and drains wetlands and destroys some of our most precious and biodiverse places. So let's talk about um, your exploration in this country to start with. And I'd like to start, if I may, with um, river pollution. Um, you go uh, to the River Colm in Devon and also to the River Wye. And, you know, the scene is devastating, isn't it? Mm. Yes, I mean, this, it, was, it was the River Culm which turned me vegan. Um, I, I'd gone there to, 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 to spend a day messing about in the river. Um, it's meant to be a beautiful place, kingfishers, um, otters, uh, uh, salmon, trout, uh, brook lampreys, all sorts of wonderful wildlife is supposed to live there. But when I arrived, well, you could smell the river from 50 metres away. And when I got there to the river bank, 
there was nothing living in it except sewage fungus, these white filamentous growths covering everything. And I, I couldn't understand what had happened. And so I followed it upstream and eventually I found the pipe that was discharging into the river. And I followed that pipe up the hill and found it was discharging from the slurry lagoons of a dairy farm. And um, when I looked at Google Maps, I found that they doubled the size of the dairy unit, but had not increased the size of the slurry lagoons. In fact, their method for getting rid of the extra manure was to pump it straight down into the river, down a pipe they had deliberately created for that purpose. I reported it to the Environment Agency. They said, oh, sounds like a very serious incident, sir. They went along and had a look. And when I got back to them, they said, we decided not to take action, sir, because it's not a serious incident. And I said, what do you mean it's not a serious incident? They said, well, there's no evidence of a fish kill. So of course there's no evidence of a fish kill. There haven't been fish living in that stretch of river for months. And they said, well, thanks very much for your concern, sir. Now kindly bog off. And I thought, what's a farmer have to do to get prosecuted, detonate an atom bomb? And when I wrote this up, in the Guardian, I had two separate whistleblowers from the Environment Agency got hold of me and said, we have been instructed from the top, a Secretary of State at the time, who was Liz Truss, we've been in instructed not to enforce against dairy farms. And that was the point I thought, right, if you're not going to enforce against them, I'm not going to eat the products. And so I went from being a vegetarian to a vegan at that moment. And then in the Welsh borders, um, years ago, I started coming across these extraordinary events where the River Wye would just suddenly go brown or go green and completely murky at times of the year when there'd hardly been any rain. It should have been flowing completely clear. And uh, eventually I found out because I was told by an expert, you know, this is not mud. This is diatoms. It's little tiny algae in the water whose growth has been stimulated by the construction of masses of chicken factories in the catchment. And these factories, which pack in tens of thousands of birds, each factory, produce a huge amount of dung. And that dung is then spread on the fields and, and supposedly it's manuring the fields. But in reality, it's being dumped because there's far more fertility than the land can possibly absorb. Um, there's no no way that the soil and the plants can absorb that amount of nit nitrate and phosphate and the rest that's in that dung. And so it washes off and it goes into the river and it stimulates the growth of algae. And they cut off the light to, to the water weeds living on, 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 the, on the bed of the river, such as water crowfoot, which is the mangroves of a river like that. That's where all the fish and invertebrates breed and shelter. You take out the water crowfoot and it's been almost entirely eliminated now from the main stem of the River Wye and the ecosystem collapses. And then as the algae respire at night, they draw oxygen out of the water column and they kill the fish. And what we've seen is this super protected river. It's got every conservation designation going. And it's this famous place where loads of people go swimming and kayaking and canoeing and fishing and all the rest of it has basically collapsed. That is pretty well the end of the ecosystem there. And far from doing anything about it, councils such as Powys County Council are continuing to grant planning permission for yet more chicken factories in the catchment. Uh, and 
it's that agricultural exceptionalism again. It, it's that sense that the rules we might apply to any other industry don't apply to agriculture. And we'll perhaps come back to regulations and policy frameworks and mm -hmm. things that can be done um, uh, a little bit later, what should be being done. Um, you write very evocatively about soil in your book. Mm. One of the things that you say is that we treat it like dirt. Mm. So soil is, is possibly the most fascinating, complex, diverse ecosystem on earth, but we don't even regard it as an ecosystem. In fact, it's not just any old ecosystem, it's a biological structure, like a coral reef. It's created by the organisms that live in it. And they create this incredibly robust and remarkable, I mean, a, a system whose functions we're scarcely beginning to understand, from which we receive 99% of our calories. So you might think this would be a slightly important thing for humanity, something we might pay a bit of attention to, something we might treasure and protect and cherish, but far from it. I mean, current agricultural practice is stripping it off the land all over the world in, in devastating ways. Uh, and while the impacts of soil erosion are, are greatest in tropical countries, where you've got more extreme weather, and also, um, in many cases, uh, poorer people driven to cultivate on steep slopes and other unsuitable places, we're doing our best to catch up in countries like the UK with the most irresponsible practices. One of those is, is growing maize, not to feed human beings, but either to feed dairy cows or to feed anaerobic digesters to make biogas. The whole idea of biogas was it was going to use waste products. But from the outset, people worked out they'd make far more money if they grew maize specifically to put into those biogas digesters. And this is the most damaging crop of all because... The rows are widely spaced. It takes a long time to mature in the spring and it takes um, so, so, so long to reach harvest point that it's difficult to get another crop in or any ground cover in before the winter comes. And so you've got all this bare soil exposed to the winter rains and the winter winds and that soil is, is being ripped from the land by the weather because it's got no protection and pretty well wherever you see a maize field now you are seeing very very major soil damage taking place it's just pointless it's this stupid production it's supposed to be green making biogas but it's exactly the opposite we're destroying our most important resource and our most fascinating ecosystem in pursuit of this supposedly green but actually very very dirty fuel mm. I can hear the frustration in your voice, George, and I'm sure that that's shared by many of the people who, who are listening. So we've talked about some of the problems with agriculture as it stands, and yet we need to eat. Mm -hmm. So what you've done is in this book is gone out and found people who are using different techniques, doing things in different ways um, in order to um, move us all in the right direction. So let's pick out a few of those. I, I'd like to start, if we may, with um, Tolly. Yes. Um, who's all about stock-free organic. Tell us about yeah. Tolly and, and what he's growing. Okay, so before, before I do so, can I just say that I find it very useful, in fact, essential to divide agriculture into three categories, which is horticulture, fruit and veg production, um, uh, grain growing, 
and livestock um, from which we get a lot of protein rich and fat rich foods and it's important i think to see these in 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 different ways because they have very different impacts and to an extent now they're almost entirely separate economies which work in different ways so taking these one by one um Tolly's approach he, he's a horticulturalist he's a grower of vegetables and and some fruit um is the most exciting thing I've seen in that field anywhere on earth. And here he is in, in central England, in, in, in South Oxfordshire, um, farming soil, which most horticulturists wouldn't even look at. In fact, it's scarcely suitable even for pasture. It's grade 3B. It's 40% stone. I and mean, people, people would call soil like that rubble. And yet, astonishingly, what he's been able to do over the past 34 years is to raise his fertility, to raise his yields of vegetables until he's hit the lower bound of what conventional producers are achieving on better soil without any fertilizer or any manure. It, it's, it, it seems like magic. And, and at first, I simply didn't believe it. I, I didn't believe that this could be done. And all the textbooks will tell you, well, of course, you've got to fertilize. Of course, you've got to add manure. But what Tolly has done through his own experiments over many years, is to anticipate by a, a long time some of the recent developments in soil ecology and our, our more up-to-date understanding of what's going on beneath the surface. And it turns out that plants have these very intimate relationships with bacteria and fungi in, in particular. Um, and that that the health of the soil and the health of, of your crops depends on a very large extent on those relationships. Plants can't scour minerals from the soil themselves. They, they, they can't obtain minerals which are locked up in the soil substrate. So they need bacteria and fungi to release those minerals for them. And in order to, to get them to do so, they do an exchange and they feed bacteria and fungi with sugars that they produce through, through photosynthesis. Often a very large proportion of the sugars that, that plants produce is released into the zone immediately surrounding the root that we call the rhizosphere. Um, and, and they, uh, and, but before they do so, they will send out these very precise chemical signals which will wake up these specific species or even these specific genotypes of bacteria that they want to talk to and they want to stimulate. And having woken them up out of dormancy, they then flood them with sugar. And the bacteria and, and fungi, in, in return, they deliver minerals to the plant, but they also protect the root hair uh, against pathogens. They'll fight off pathogens and they stimulate the plant's immune system as well to help it fight off even uh, things attacking it above ground, like aphids and caterpillars. Uh, uh, above the soil. In other words, the this very dense concentration of bacteria that develops around the root hair performs exactly the same functions as the bacteria in our gut. And the rhizosphere, the zone of soil surrounding the root, is the plant's external gut. Remarkably, there are um, around a thousand phyla, major groups of bacteria. But our guts are dominated by four of those phyla, and the rhizosphere is dominated by four of those phyla, and they are the same four phyla. 
it, it's, it, it basically is the plant's gut system. And yet, you know, we ignore this. We just disregard it. We think, oh, soil is just, just this stuff. But it, there's so much going on there. So anyway, what Tolly has managed to do, it seems, because you know, no one's quite sure how he and several other people who have followed his techniques have managed to pull it off, because we know so little about what's going on in the soil. But it seems by getting the carbon concentrations just right, he's managed to tweak those relationships so that the bacteria and fungi lock up minerals when they're not needed by the plant and release minerals when they are needed. And those two functions are equally important because if you're not locking up the minerals when they're not needed, they wash out of the soil. And then you have to keep topping it up with fertilizers and manures uh, and, and manure. But you want those minerals released just at the time when the plant needs them and not at any other time. So you want that relationship between the plant signaling to the bacteria and fungi um, and, and the response of those microbes to it, you want that to be functioning optimally. And it seems that Tolly's technique, which involves, among other things, adding a, a very small amount of wood chip to a piece of land every seven years, on average, it's one millimeter of wood chip per year, um, uh, seems to have created just the right conditions somehow for that relationship to function as well as it possibly can. And when you ask him, what are you growing? Mm. He says biodiversity. Yes, that's right. He, he sees his vegetables as a byproduct of the ecosystem under the ground. And, and of course, he, he's right. And that is the way we ought to see it. You know, we should remember the soil doesn't exist for our benefit. You know, it's not there to serve us. But if we work with it rather than against it, then we can protect the soil, we can keep it on the land, and at the same time, we can maintain high yields of crops. And, and we have to go for high yields, because otherwise farming sprawls across the planet. Um, far too much land is used for farming, and a lot of it is very low yield farming. This is agricultural sprawl. And we complain about urban sprawl, and we're right to do so. Urban sprawl is a blight. But the entire urban area of the planet is just 1% of the land. Whereas um, farming occupies 38% of the land, and a lot of that farming produces very little food, but it stops wild ecosystems across that vast extent from existing. So let's jump forward then to your third division um, of farming, the livestock, because yeah. that seems to be, um, that, that will, that's where that's having the impact. Um, that that's by far and away the biggest sport. impact, yeah. So talk to us about um, how you see the future of livestock, how we should all see the future mm. of livestock. And if there wasn't farming on that sort of scale, what that would mean for wildlife. Yeah, yeah. So the, there are two things, fundamental things we have to do to protect life on Earth. One is leaving fossil fuels in the ground. The other is stop farming animals. Those are the two things. If we do that, then we're basically one we've basically stopped the catastrophe from happening. And neither of them actually are that difficult because we have now the substitutes required to get out of those two, the most disastrous industries of all. I mean, these are by far and away the industries with the biggest environmental impacts. And we know about fossil fuels and we're suitably alarmed by what fossil fuels are doing. 
but we are astonishingly ignorant about the impacts of the livestock industry. And in fact, we we buy into greenwash in a shameful way, the sort of greenwash which we're, we're, we're fully aware of when fossil fuel in, uh, industries are trying to impose it on us. But we believe all this stuff about regenerative ranching and things, which is just as much nonsensical as, as the clean coal and the other um, things which the, the coal and the oil industries are trying to persuade us of. Um, and we have to see this for what is for what it is, the, the greatest cause of biodiversity destruction, of ecological destruction on Earth, and one of the greatest causes of climate breakdown. I mean, livestock alone produces more greenhouse gas emissions than transport does. And its carbon, it, carbon opportunity costs are far, far greater, because if we weren't um, keeping cattle and sheep on, on the land, um, um, that land would um, be occupied by ecosystems which are much, much richer in carbon, such as forests and wetlands, for example, or, or, or for that matter, natural grasslands and natural savannas which aren't being degraded by, by, by ranching livestock. And yet people have fallen for this nonsensical story that we're, we're, we're storing carbon, we're, we're stopping um, climate breakdown, and there's no science whatsoever to support this, and yet it's become a very popular talking point pushed by the beef industry in particular and we now have the opportunity as we never had before to break away from this neolithic production system which could not possibly feed a 21st century population i mean if we all you know uh, tried to do what so many foodies and 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 restaurant reviewers want us to do which is to eat pasture fed beef uh, we need several planets and there'd be no space on any of them for wild ecosystems but we don't have to do this anymore for everyone to be well fed um, because there are different ways of doing it and while the entire um, um, period of agriculture has focused on multicellular organisms plants and animals we're now seeing a new food revolution, as profound as the agricultural revolution, focusing on single-celled organisms, such as bacteria and yeast, for example. And through precision fermentation, which is a refined form of brewing, we can now start producing our protein-rich and fat-rich foods from microbes instead of from animals. And instantly, you solve the horrendous animal welfare issues involved in, in, in farming of animals, which are treated appallingly. I mean, if we treated cats and dogs like we treat pigs, we'd be sent to prison. Literally, we would be sent to prison. And yet it's just utterly normal to be eating pork every day without even thinking of where it comes from. Um, and um, But they also can minimise to an extraordinary degree the environmental footprint of food production. We're talking about um, um, reducing it by thousands, thousands of times, reducing the land footprint, the water footprint, the nutrient footprint, if you switch from growing multicellular organisms to unicellular ones. And some of these microbes feed on hydrogen or methanol. They don't need any agricultural feedstocks at all. Um, and you can produce those through renewable electricity. Um, and, and so it can enable us to... Um, reclaim fast tracts of the planet from farming, particularly from livestock farming, and rewild those huge areas of land. Bring back the forests, bring back the wetlands, bring back the savannas and the natural grasslands that see 
because we can also stop commercial fishing, bring back the coral reefs and the kelp forests and the sea floors and all the things which are being trashed by trawling and, and gill netting and long lining and the rest, allow the world's ecosystems to come roaring back and stop the sixth great extinction in its tracks while simultaneously drawing down much of the carbon dioxide we've released into the atmosphere. And at the same time, we can help countries which have become highly import dependent to break that dependency because you can set up microbial breweries anywhere, just like you can set up a microbrewery for making beer, you can set up a microbrewery for making protein rich foods, which can be tailored to local markets. And so countries which now depend on importing grain and meat from thousands of kilometers away, often um, making themselves extremely vulnerable and losing a great deal of foreign exchange in, in buying this food and with their people highly vulnerable to, to, to hunger, can greatly enhance their food security and food sovereignty by switching to microbial production. You paint a wonderful picture of the future in terms of the land use and the animals and the, and the wildlife and so on. Fermenting bacteria, I'm wondering what the restaurateurs and the, the food <laughs> critics are gonna say. And of course, everybody's first question is, what does fermenting bacteria taste like? Will I like it? How can I you know, keep some of the yeah. really actually very important cultural and social things that come with mm -hmm. the food that we are used to? How might that all fit in? Yeah. Well, the first thing to say is that if you are worried about eating bacteria, I've got some bad news for you. You eat them with every meal. Our food is full of them. And in fact, we deliberately introduce live bacteria into some of our food, like cheese and yogurt and kimchi and sauerkraut and lo loads of other fermented foods that we eat because, because we like that. <laughs> we like the taste. But this is, we're talking about um, a flour which is made of, of dead bacteria in this case. And I was... Um, the first person outside the laboratory to eat a pancake made of this flour um, produced by a company called Solar Foods in Helsinki, um, uh, which was a, a small flip for man. Um, and uh, amazingly, it tasted just like a pancake. But we're not just talking about pancakes here. We're talking about substituting all animal products and in a way that's much cheaper much easier than growing animals requires far less infrastructure, far less environmental destruction. And now that we have ways of producing things which seem very much like even steak, um, you know, without any very difficult technologies, I mean, basically sort of 3D printing technology, currently using plant proteins, but you can do it much more effectively using microbial proteins instead. Um, there's really no limit to the number of, of, of products we can substitute, but actually then it gets much more exciting still when you think of all the entirely new things you can begin to develop. And you know, we can't imagine them any more than the first people to domesticate a wild cow were imagining camembert. You know, the, the, we, I, my hope, and, and I've met a few people who are very keen to do this, is that innovative chefs pick up these new technologies once they're released onto the market and start developing these foods, which you know, we can only dream about at this stage, but, but um, could you know, have any kind of texture, any kind of flavor and create entirely new cuisines, which will become culturally important to us, just like bread and cheese and other agricultural products have become important to us. The 
remaining band, if you like, of, of agriculture that you mentioned is grains. Mm. Let's, when we think of grains, we think of um, annuals, don't we really? But mm. one of the things that you've explored is perennials, um, and mm. in particular, something called Kernza. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I, I'm very interested in the possibility of perennial grain crops because annual grain crops are inherently destructive. Now, almost all the grain we eat, by which I mean cereals, oil seeds and legumes, beans and peas, pulses, almost all of it comes from annual plants. Now, large areas covered by annual plants are quite rare in nature and they occur in the wake of disasters such as a volcanic eruption or a landslide or a major flood or a fire, which destroys all the perennial, the long lasting vegetation. And then the annuals, that's their moment. That's when they come in and quickly colonize that land because they reproduce quickly. They put a lot of effort into making seed, which is why we grow them as crops. Um, And they can quickly spread and occupy that land and hold their ground for a year or two before the perennials come back in and and start to crowd them out. So in order to grow our grain crops, we have to produce an annual ecological disaster. We have to clear the land, um, either by plowing it or by spraying it and kill everything else that was living there, as if we were that volcanic eruption or that landslide or or that fire. Um, and, And then we have to pamper the little plants as they're growing, to kill the pests, to kill the weeds that might compete with them. And in doing so, we do massive environmental damage. Now, what if instead of having to do that every year, we could do it just every few years? And this is the massive potential of perennial grain crops, that they could reduce to a very large extent your environmental impacts. I mean, if you're doing that just every five years, you've reduced them by 80%. Every 10 years, you reduce those impacts by 90%. You can see how this can make a massive difference to, to, to the way we produce our grain crops. And as well, this has been a dream, really, of scientists for about a century to produce perennial grain crops, but it's only now beginning to be realized, thanks in large part to the work of the Land Institute in Kansas, which is, which is a, a non-profit group trying to find candidate plants. It's been scouring archives all over the world to find suitable perennial plants for grain growing. And it's had some great successes already. Um, there's one which is fully commercialized, which is a perennial rice variety now being grown quite widely in southern China. And farmers are desperate to get hold of the seed because not only does it greatly reduce your soil erosion because you're not plowing your paddy fields every year and they were having enormous soil problems, but also greatly reduces your need for labor um, uh, because you don't have to plant every year. And so many young people have moved to the cities that there's a really big labor shortage. But these are also much more resilient to environmental um, crises because their roots are much deeper, their above ground structures are tougher. And so when a major drought or a major cyclone or something hits, they're more likely to be able to withstand that than our tender annual crops are. So there's lots of good reasons to be developing this um, and lots of candidate crops coming forward. And one of the things the Land Institute sent me was a load of flour made of this stuff called Kernza. 
which is the name they give to intermediate wheat grass. It's not actually wheat. It is a member of the grass family like wheat is, but it's a big, clumpy, perennial plant, which has um, lots and lots of seed heads, smaller seeds so far than wheat, and they need to still do some work to get the yields up, but that, that's on the right trajectory at the moment. Um, and um, I was very interested to, to, to taste this, to, to try this, to see, you know, what would we lose if we switch from wheat to Kernza? So they sent me a load of flour and I made wraps with it. I made bread with it. I made digestive biscuits with it. And I made salt crackers with it to try every, everything I could think of to make out of this quite high protein flour. And it was like, a, it was a revelation. They were so delicious. It's like wheat suddenly seems really bland by comparison. It, it was rich and nutty and, and had this sort of, enhanced flavor you could taste everything much better much more clearly than you could with wheat um and even you know better than some of the 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 old old varieties like emma and spelt you know you could you could the, the taste was was even better than them so i thought oh we're not going to lose anything at all here you know we, we could gain considerably in gastronomic terms as well as in, in environmental terms We've talked about big picture stuff and what the industry can do. I wonder whether we might turn now to think about what it, we as individuals can do. Mm. And perhaps part of that is going back to what we were talking about at the beginning to pressurize for regulation and law and yeah. frameworks to, to prevent the problems mm. that we've heard about. Yes, I, I mean, we, we really have to apply the same standards to agriculture as we do to any other industry, because until that point, it will remain the most destructive of all industries on earth and there's some very good agricultural practice I mean we've talked about a bit um, we've I've talked more about the bad practice but there are some great practitioners there are a lot of people wanting to do better there's a massive deficit of research and development for people who are trying to do better because all the research money tends to just follow the corporate agenda um, and we need a much greater diversity of of experimental procedures to find out ways of, of of massively reducing environmental impacts while maintaining high yields and you know the holy grail here is high yield low impact low impact farming is uh, sorry low yield farming is no answer to anything um, because you just get agricultural sprawl but high yield farming with high impacts is no answer either because that means you're less likely to be able to farm that land in future as well as causing lots of other environmental destruction. So we, we, we have to find ways of keeping up the yields while greatly reducing the impacts. And this is why people like Tolly are so exciting to me. This is why things like that rice variety, which has got the same yield as annual rice, but massively reduced impacts um, is, is so exciting to me. And we need to be finding those examples and finding ways of replicating them as widely as possible so that's part of it um we yeah we need to be ramping up the demand for proper regulation of agriculture um we we can change things ourselves within our own diets in a radical way by switching from an animal based to a plant based diet this will become a lot easier once these microbial foods come on stream but they're awaiting regulatory approval at the moment and the regulatory system is very subject to the lobbying of the animal agriculture lobby, which is trying to hold up 
um, the approval for these new products because it realizes how how dangerous they are to to its own industry. So we we have to try to push them out of the way and and enable um, this new food economy to take off. But in the meantime, switching to a plant based diet is the most beneficial thing you can do as far as your own ecological footprint is concerned. That that's the thing above any other change in your life, which will make the biggest difference. I'd like to finish, George, if we may, by inviting you to read a passage from your book, which I found so, so powerful. And perhaps you'd introduce it, but basically it's when we're not starting from where we are now. Let's imagine it was the other way round. Imagine that the world was currently producing most of its protein and much of its fat from microbes in breweries, occupying in total the land area of a small European province and fed and powered by clean electricity. Imagine that my evil anagrammatic twin, Tom Go Bioregen, wrote a book with the following argument. I've got this great idea. Let's shut down the food factories. Let's replace the food they make by catching some wild animals. Aurochs, wild boar, jungle fowl, and a woolly ruminant from Mesopotamia would do, modifying them drastically and breeding them in stupendous numbers. Let's separate the young from their mothers, castrate them, dock their tails, clip their beaks, teeth and horns without anaesthesia, herd them into barns and cages, subject them to extreme boredom and sensory deprivation for their short, distressing lives, then corral them into giant factories where we stun them, cut their throats, skin, pluck, and hack their bloody flesh into chunks that you, the lucky customer, will want to eat. Oh, yes, you will. I've done the sums. We'd need to slaughter only 75 billion animals a year. Let's kill the baby aurochs, extract a chemical from the lining of their fourth stomachs and mix it with milk from lactating mothers of the same species to create a wobbly mass of fat and protein. We'll stir in some live bacteria to digest this mass, then let their excrement sit till they go hard and yellow and start to stink. You're really going to want this. Let's fell the forest, drain the wetlands, seize the wild grasslands, expel the indigenous people, kill the large predators, exclude the wild herbivores, trigger the global collapse of wildlife, climate breakdown and the destruction of the habitable planet. Let's fence most of this land for our captive animals to graze and plant the rest with crops to make them fat. Let's spray the crops with biocidal toxins and minerals that'll leach into the soil and water. Let's divert the rivers and drain the aquifers. Let's pour billions of tons of shit into the sea. Let's trigger repeated plagues transmitted to humans by the animals we've captured and destroy the efficacy of our most important medicines. Sure, it'll trash everything after a while, but think of the fun we'll have. Come on. You know you want this. I hope you would run this scoundrel out of town. George, as I said, so powerful. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. And thank you so much for a, a fascinating conversation. I have to say, food for thought. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Julia. Great to chat with you. And you.